0: What shall I say first? What shall I keep until the end? The gods have tried me in a thousand ways, but first my name, let that be known to you. And if I pull away from pitiless death, friendship will bind us, though my land lies far away. I am Laertes' son, Odysseus. From the Odyssey by Homer, as translated by Robert Fitzgerald. Hello and welcome to the Western Traditions Podcast. My name is Rob Paxton, and this is the eighth episode of The Greek Sun, a series of podcasts about how the history of ancient Greece impacted Western civilization. Beginning in 2021, I produced 25 episodes about the history of the ancient world, from the beginning of the universe to the rise of the Persian Empire. In the summer of 2022, I concluded that first series of podcasts and began to speak about ancient Greece beginning with the rise of Mycenaean culture. A couple months ago, I released an episode about the Iliad, the first of Homer's two great epic poems about the Trojan War and its aftermath. Today, I will discuss the Odyssey, the second of those two works by Homer, which relates how one particular hero, Odysseus, struggled to find his way back home after the fall of Troy. For more information about this podcast or any of its episodes, please visit the website at western-traditions.org, that's western-traditions.org, where you can listen to all the episodes, see some helpful maps, check out my source lists, and find good books to read about subjects covered in the episodes. If you like, leave a comment or ask a question, and please remember to support the podcast through the PayPal or Patreon links found there. And with all that out of the way, let's get into the Odyssey. Honesty is the Iliad's wife, that is, according to Samuel Butler, a famous novelist and an English translator of the works of Homer. This may seem like a strange declaration to someone at first, but if you've read both of these works, it makes a lot of sense, because like a man and a woman in a marriage, both books are very different, and yet they are notably linked. The Iliad is very focused on martial matters, Like any good war movie, it contains passages of emotional drama and insight into characters' souls, but the focus is, inevitably, again and again, drawn back to the savagery of the conflict, almost relishing the suffering and the carnage. Recall how in the last episode I mentioned Homer's penchant for describing wounds. The Odyssey, in contrast, is more of a romance. Don't get me wrong, there is violence in the Odyssey, and every reader will be satisfied when Odysseus finally casts off his disguise in the 22nd book and begins slaughtering the suitors who stand between him and reunion with his wife. But much more time and attention is given to journeys, to struggles, not just physical, but emotional, as Odysseus endures the long years of his exile. The distinct differences between the Odyssey and the Iliad have given rise to the idea, first of all, that the writer or composer of this tale was not the same person who wrote or composed the Iliad. Secondly, some have gone so far as to even posit that the writer of the Odyssey was a woman. This is not a rabbit hole that I will take you down today, though. If you want to know more about these controversies, there are plenty of places to investigate them. I am more interested in the actual substance of the poem and how it has impacted Western culture and thought. But the role of women in the Odyssey in itself is worthy of discussion. In the last episode, I noted how women were barely noticeable in the Iliad, and when they were noticed, they were typically only noticed for their beauty. And the female goddesses, for the most part, were either the nagging Hera or the insufferable stuck-up beauty queen Aphrodite. And these goddesses are usually quickly shut down by the male gods, such as when Zeus menaces Hera into docility. Aphrodite is even assaulted by a human male and forced to flee the battlefield. Now, Athena in the Iliad was the only exception to this either dismissive or negative view of women, and Athena figures quite prominently and positively in the Odyssey. In the Iliad, the entire menagerie of gods was represented, and the various gods either came themselves to the battlefield to sway the hearts of mortals, or they sent their messengers, such as Iris or Hermes. In the Odyssey... It is almost as if the entire pantheon of the gods goes on vacation and leaves management of the situation down below to Athena, who guides the story from start to finish. Now, Poseidon and Hermes will play occasional roles, but they are usually restrained from doing anything that keeps Athena from fulfilling her chosen destiny for her stalwart follower, Odysseus. The depictions of human women are, as you will see, also quite different in this second work by Homer. And women are everywhere in the Odyssey. They appear in most of the many episodes in Odysseus' Return Home. And their roles are quite prominent and strong. There is Circe, the divine enchantress. And then there's Calypso, the immortal witch, as just two examples. But there's also the very human Penelope, Odysseus's wife, both a loyal spouse and a clever wife, who eludes the overbearing will of dozens of suitors for years with their cunning tricks. Let us not also forget the lovely Nausicaa, the princess Odysseus encounters in his journeys and who is described as the very soul of feminine grace without any disparaging exceptions made in the text. She is simply a wonderful young girl whom Odysseus meets and befriends. Now the Odyssey is also not just shorter in length than the Iliad, but it also moves much more quickly. While there is less martial action perhaps than in the Iliad, the pace of the story is much more energetic. But enough introduction and preface, let's open the book now and begin to follow the tracks of Odysseus as they lead away from the shores of Troy, back home to Ithaca. The Odyssey begins with these words in the Robert Fitzgerald translation. Sing in me, muse, and through me tell the story of that man skilled in all ways of contending, the wanderer, harried for years on end after he plundered the stronghold on the proud heights of Troy. The very first word of the Odyssey, however, in the original Greek, due to a distinct order of the parts of speech in that language, is not the word for sing, but it is the word andra, or man in English. The first word of the Iliad was rage, and it was a story about rage, the rage of Achilles, in its slow burn and final conflagration as he brought down Hector and perpetrated savagery upon that Trojan hero's corpse. And just so the Odyssey is a story about a man. This is a more human story. Achilles, though technically mortal, lived and operated on an almost divine level. But Odysseus, while a superlative man, he is shrewd, he's skilled in weaponry, he's physically strong, he is nevertheless very recognizably human. His problems and his solutions to them are all ones that we could aspire to and admire, even if they are a little beyond our own capabilities. Odysseus is not some superhero with monstrous strength, driving a chariot into the enemy ranks and slaughtering scores of enemies with weapons provided by the gods. No, Odysseus is a lost soul, lost physically, emotionally, and spiritually when we first encounter him in the Odyssey, and he must find his way back, not only to his home, but to his own identity. How much does this resonate today with the average reader of the Odyssey, and how much in any time period, particularly now? But make no mistake, while I have tried to bring Odysseus down to our level somewhat, make no mistake, he is a powerful warrior, and he is unusually cunning, and he is someone in touch with the Divine but he is a figure much more within the reach of our own aspirations. And so he is a captivating character. But back to the text. The Odyssey opens with the praise of Odysseus for his valor, endurance, and so on. And then Homer begins the story in race. Instead of telling us about Odysseus leaving Troy with his ships and heading back to Ithaca, we learn that all his ships are gone, all his sailors dead and he endures alone with an immortal nymph named Calypso in her sea-hollowed caves, as Robert Fitzgerald renders the Greek. Now, enduring in the clutches of a beautiful and ever-young nymph may not seem so tough, but Homer assures us that Odysseus, like many an average man, cannot stop thinking about his family, his wife, his home, and the gods sympathize. But they have all refrained from interfering, Homer tells us, because Poseidon holds a grudge against the man, But now, Poseidon has gone off to enjoy the worship and sacrifice of the sunburnt races who live at the verges of the world, again in Fitzgerald's translation. So the gods, in the first book of the Odyssey, begin to discuss the relief of Odysseus. Now, Zeus naturally opens the discussion and reminds those present of another chapter in their return, from which I will describe in more detail in a later episode, Zeus speaks about the fate of Agamemnon, who survived the war only to return to tragedy and death at home. Zeus tells the tale from the viewpoint of Aegisthus, the man who murdered Agamemnon after he returned from the war. As with much of the Greek mythology and history that we will read, the ancient audience already knew the background and did not need things explained very in a very detailed fashion to them. So Homer often makes inside references to history and to mythological events that might go over your head if you're not well-read in this area. The tragedy of Agamemnon is long and complicated, and I will get into it in another time, but the sum of it all is that the Greek high king returned home to Mycenae and was promptly assassinated by his wife's lover, Aegisthus, who then usurped the throne. Later, Agamemnon's son, Orestes, killed the usurper. And reclaim the throne. Now, Zeus in the Odyssey briefly recounts this tragedy and laments how men like Aegisthus, the murderer of Agamemnon, do not listen to the moral urgings of the gods, but instead seek their own destruction in being willful and selfish. At this remark, Athena breaks in and asks her father if he has forgotten one of the mortals who has been much more faithful to the gods' instructions, a brave warrior named Odysseus, who lingers on an island where one of the daughters of Atlas, the Calypso that I mentioned earlier, essentially holds him prisoner, beguiling him, as Homer says, to keep him from returning to his home on the island of Ithaca. Zeus responds in favor. He has not forgotten that great man Odysseus. The king of the god remarks that no mortal is half so wise. Again, in the Odyssey, the gods praise Odysseus's wisdom before his strength. Anyway, Zeus says, Poseidon has had enough time to make the man suffer for poking out the eye of the sea god's son, the cyclops Polyphemus. It is time to discuss the return of Odysseus. Now, a couple of things about this depiction of the discussion among the gods. First, quickly note that Zeus gives us some bit of foreshadow here about Odysseus stabbing out the eye of Polyphemus. We haven't heard the story yet, so it acts as a type of foreshadow, but the audience in Homer's time probably had heard of this event already. There were at the time of the writing probably a variety of stories circulating about the adventures of Odysseus and others after the Trojan War. And when we come to the period of classical Greece, there will be a number of excellent stage plays to read about these adventures. But furthermore, this heavenly dialogue, along with all the divine discussions on Mount Olympus and the Odyssey, is quick and concluded without any conflict among the gods. In the Iliad, some of the discussions about the mortal events below almost come to blows, with Zeus threatening to manhandle all the gods at the same time and the other gods running around trying to either calm him down or simply flee his wrath. This opening discussion among the gods in the Odyssey is typical of all the talks the that, that gods have in this poem. Athena brings up some matter related to the sojourn of Odysseus. Zeus either proposes a solution, or he hears out Athena's ideas, and then he agrees to it. Here in book one, with Zeus on board, Aqu- Athena quickly picks up the ball and runs with it. She asks Zeus to send Hermes to the island where Odysseus now lingers with Calypso. Meanwhile, Athena herself will visit Odysseus's son to help him preserve Odysseus's home, While the hero makes his return. And so Athena darts down to the island of Ithaca off the northwestern coast of the Greek peninsula. She takes the form of a sea captain and an old friend of the family of Odysseus. This gender bending happens without reflection or comment and does not apparently seem to have been unusual to the ancient Greek ear. Athena enters into an upsetting scene at the home of Odysseus, a place the island king has not visited for some 20 years. The goddess sees the estate overrun with suitors, and here we are introduced to the double-ended dilemma of Odysseus. While he himself is stranded at sea on another island, his home island is under siege, a different kind of siege than the one laid at Troy, but a siege nonetheless. Here, with Odysseus long gone, and it well known that all other heroes have long ago returned from war, it was apparently presumed some years ago that the king of Ithaca was dead, and that his wife was now an eligible widow. And so the suitors for the hand of Penelope, the wife of Odysseus, the number of suitors has increased, and they have accumulated in and around the ancestral home of the missing Ithacan king. The lusty suitors, as they appear in Athena's eyes, lounge around the, ta- the halls of the royal estate, playing dice, eating meat, and feasting with the help of the servants of Odysseus's besieged family and the meat that they eat is that of the slaughtered cattle of Odysseus's own estate. Quickly, Telemachus, the son of Odysseus, who has never seen his father and has grown into manhood in his absence, goes to welcome Athena in the guise of this traveler amid the chaos of the suitor's debauchery. In the dialogue between Telemachus and Mentes, the captain in whose persona Athena has appeared, we hear a famous epithet which will be repeated a number of times throughout the Odyssey and in the 3,000 years since its writing, Many times, again and again, in various literature, and literary and cultural references, the mellifluous phrase is the wine-dark sea. Thus does Mentes refer to the waters of the Aegean Sea. Now, this epithet has stoked a lot of discussion and investigation by modern scholars and even scientists from other fields. As you probably know, wine, especially the kind of wine that the Greeks produced 3,000 years ago, generally has a reddish color, and the ocean is not red. As a result of this and other phrases found in ancient literature, modern scholars speculate a number of things about our ancestors and their world. Did they see color as we do? Were they able to see blue? Was there something different about the Aegean Sea at this time that caused discoloration? These discussions are fascinating, and I encourage you, if you're curious, to dig deeper into them. For the purposes of this podcast, I am content simply to say that it is a beautiful phrase the wine dark sea. Wording that sticks in the mind, as evidenced by the thousands of times that authors have mimicked the phrase down through the centuries. Now, anyway, Athena, in the guise of Mentes, introduces himself, or herself, to Telemachus as an old family friend. Mentes recalls Odysseus and remarks on the likeness Telemachus bears to his father. Telemachus reveals that he is, in fact, reputed to be the son of Odysseus, but... In a truly sad and touching confession, Telemachus reveals his doubts about his lineage, having never seen his father, living as he is in the shadow of a man lost to mystery. Quote, the whirlwinds got him, unquote, as Robert Fitzgerald renders it in English. The legendary man went off to war and never returned. Telemachus is in the worst of all possible situations, he concludes. Two good results res- resulted from his father going off to war were possible. Odysseus might have returned and maintained order in his realm and raised his family, or he might have died among friends at Troy and been remembered in funeral rites so that his family could carry on, his mother could marry, and his son could inherit his estate and begin his adult life. Instead, all continues in a state of uncertainty, is the king dead or not. In the interim, bad men do as they will on the island of Ithaca, with no consequences to suffer. Telemachus is perhaps the first in literary history to exemplify a type of character later embodied in Shakespeare's Hamlet, that lost son who is without his father to provide guidance and consequently, consequently lives without purpose and in some way lacks a certain assertiveness. And this willpower must be supplied or the boy will suffer for it. Thus suffers Telemachus, a horde of grown men misusing his father's estate, and Telemachus, having grown up to some extent amid this insult to his own manhood, feels powerless to do anything about it. Certainly, he probably feels somewhat emasculated, knowing that his father, were he present, would set things straight and matter-of-factly slaughter these evil men, even as they danced and sang and feasted. Athena moves the plot along quickly now. Still in the persona of Mentes, the old family friend, she says that Telemachus should first call an assembly and explain his dilemma to the gathered populace and demand that the suitors be expelled from his home. Then the young man should gather a ship and a crew of friends to travel by sea to the homes of Nestor and Menelaus, names well remembered from the Iliad. Those men can possibly tell him more about the fate of his father Odysseus. Knowing then if the man is alive or dead, Then, Telemachus should return home and do what is appropriate. Hold out for another year, perhaps, if he feels the father is alive. If he learns for certain that his father is dead, then he can hold a funeral and give his mother away in marriage. And then, Athena says through the mouth of Mentes, Telemachus should follow in the footsteps of Orestes, the son of Agamemnon, and kill outright the men who dishonor his father's memory, family, and estate. Then, excusing himself, Mentes suddenly disappears. Here is the passage from Book One of the Odyssey. With this, Athena left him, as a bird rustles upward, off and gone. But as she went, she put a new spirit in him, a new dream of his father, clearer now, so that he marveled to himself, divining that a god had been his guest. The narrative then turns its face upward to catch sight of Penelope. As a minstrel sings to the suitors about the return of the heroes from Troy, Penelope comes down the stairs from her quarters on the second floor. She asks the minstrel to stop singing such songs, but is countered by her son, who insists that the minstrel sing on about this theme, the travails of those who survived the war. Penelope then returns to her room and weeps for Odysseus. Athena, pitying the poor woman, casts a sweet sleep on her eyes, as Fitzgerald tells it. Telemachus, though, then turns on the suitors. "'Have a good time tonight,' he says. "'Tomorrow there'll be an assembly.' and afterward you will not return here, but go to your own homes and eat your own food. This sudden manning up of the orphan Telemachus upsets the suitors, particularly Antinous, who vocalizes his hope that Telemachus never becomes king with such a haughty attitude. At this juncture, another suitor enters the dialogue. Eurymachus tells Telemachus to calm down, and anyway, he asks, Who was your visitor? The suitor wonders aloud if Telemachus' friend or visitor brought news of Odysseus obviously this would be a concern for the suitors were the brutal war hero to return and find a lot of unprepared men sitting around his house harassing his wife and child just an old friend telemachus replies and as for my father there is no hope thus he falsely soothes the suitors and they turn back to their games and their feasting the first book ends as night falls and the suitors depart home telemachus retires to his bedroom upstairs in a sort of tower that overlooks everything and where an aged servant, a slave really, by the name of Eurycleia, tends to him before he falls asleep, thinking of Athena's advice. As with the Iliad, I spent a lot of time on the first book. It actually moves much more quickly than the first book of the Iliad. The Odyssey, though also divided into 24 portions or chapters or books like the Iliad, is a shorter, more quickly paced tale overall than the Iliad. Helping things along the way is the goddess Athena, who frequently intervenes to either assist Odysseus or to encourage him, or Telemachus, especially when Odysseus begins the final leg of his journey home by departing from the Isle of Calypso. The following three books, books two, three, and four, primarily concern themselves with Telemachus and his journey to see both Nestor and Menelaus, old warriors from the Trojan conflict who returned successfully from the war and now live in glory at their respective homes in Pylos and Sparta. Before leaving Ithaca, Telemachus calls for an assembly of the men of the community, most likely from the landed families, not from the lower classes, certainly not including the slaves. And these men gather and listen to the first angry complaint of Telemachus. He scolds them all for allowing the situation to become as it is with King Odysseus' estate in chaos and the shameful pursuit of his mother. He also swears that there will be slaughter among the suitors if they do not stop. The shocked suitors led by Antinous rebuke Telemachus Antinous then recounts how it is really Penelope who has caused the problem suffered on Ithaca. And in his reply, we learn that Penelope has avoided choosing a suitor for years through her trickery. He describes the now famous story in which she insists on weaving a death shroud for the father of Odysseus, Laertes, who still lives. After its completion, she will choose a suitor and marry. Every day, Penelope labored at the loom, weaving the shroud, and every night in secret, she would unweave it, so that she appeared to make almost no progress as the years passed. They finally caught her at this deception in the fourth year and forced her to finish, but still she has not given up on Odysseus. Antinous then suggests that, instead of sending the suitors all home, that Penelope should give up and choose a man to marry. Telemachus should drive her from her home if that's what it takes. Until then, they will continue feasting on the cattle and livestock of Odysseus and commandeering his servants for their own needs." Telemachus responds angrily to this idea, and then Zeus sends an omen. A pair of eagles descends on the crowd in fury and tears at the faces and cheeks of the people with their talons before flying away again. An old man in the assembly voices the ancient idea that this is a clear sign. Odysseus is near. The suitors should stop harassing his family. The same man states that he predicts all this, that it would take 19 years for Odysseus to return. The suitors do not agree with this interpretation. Eventually the meeting breaks up and the suitors as a group descend once again on the home of Odysseus to feast and game while they wait for Penelope's fidelity to evaporate. Aided by Athena, disguised now as another family friend named Mentor, Telemachus sets sail at nightfall with a ship and a crew of 20 young men. Note the name Mentor. Disguised as this character, Athena will guide Telemachus throughout the epic tale. And thus we have our modern term Mentor someone who teaches and guides, someone who brings us to our full flowering as an individual. The suitors know what Telemachus is planning and suspect that he's going to hire mercenaries or buy poison to come back and kill them all. It would be a shame if something happened to him at sea, the suitors speculate mirthfully. Then they would have to divide up his estate between themselves and finally award his mother to some lucky man. In the following two books, books three and four, we continue to follow Telemachus as he travels first to Pylos and then Sparta. In Pylos, he meets with old Nestor, who survived the war in the journey home, and who has continued to age gracefully. Upon arriving at the shores of this kingdom, Telemachus witnesses a sacrifice in action. Within sight of the beach, upon the designated altars, nine congregations of 500 worshippers each, each offer nine bulls in sacrifice, burning thigh bones wrapped in fat, while the rest of the meat is taken to share amongst themselves soon amid the feasting telemachus meets nestor prince of charioteers as homer calls him telemachus reveals his identity in his quest to find the news of his father nestor is moved with bitter memories of the war of the journey there and the journey back it is too much to tell about could any mortal man tell the whole story nestor asks not if you stayed five or six years to hear it nestor does describe a moment at the end of the war after they had plundered troy He recalls that menelaus wanted to get going straight away and push out to sea but agamemnon wanted to sacrifice a hecatomb in order to placate athena who was angry at the achaeans perhaps for the theft of her pallium from troy or perhaps just due to the extremes to which the greeks had given themselves over in their destruction of troy killing all the men and enslaving all the women and children there is no agreement on the matter and the army splits acrimoniously Half leave with Menelaus immediately, and the other half stays with Agamemnon. Of those that leave, Odysseus decides to turn back and rejoin Agamemnon. The rest, though they suffer some scares on the way home, are back in their homelands on mainland Greece within a week. This seems both easy to believe and incredible. A quick glance at the map shows us that Troy would have been on the northwest coast of Anatolia, or modern-day Turkey, just across the Aegean Sea from now from what we now think of as traditionally Greek lands. It's easy to imagine, with favorable conditions, a quick trip from Troy back to the Peloponnesian Peninsula, where many of the allies came from. But we also know that it took nine years for Odysseus to make essentially the same journey, though he had to travel slightly farther west and north around Cape Maleas to reach his home island of Ithaca on the western coast of the Greek Peninsula. This gives you an idea of the strange trouble that Odysseus must have encountered on his journey i mean he could have reached his home walking provided he got a quick boat trip across the Dardanelles strait in a matter of weeks or months how could a journey by ship have taken so long it is like telling someone telling you that it took them nine years to get from san francisco to l.a or from berlin to paris it begs for explanation even those who stayed behind with agamemnon returned home in a reasonable amount of time though with their own difficulties as i described earlier some sailed into trouble Others, like Agamemnon, returned to treachery in their homes. Menelaus himself, though he departed early, ended up being blown off course and stranded in Egypt, but he became rich over there for several, during several years, trading with the natives, and returned home late, with his recaptured helen and his ships full of gold, only to discover that his brother Agamemnon was long, long ago murdered. But long-winded Nestor ultimately cannot tell Telemachus anything about Odysseus, he should travel overland to Sparta and speak with Menelaus, who sits on his throne there. The next morning, before Telemachus departs, the citizens and the ship's crew gather before the gate of Nestor's palace, and the sacrifice is performed for his departure. Here it is in the Fitzgerald rendition. Most of the men named in this passage are Nestor's sons. The heifer came from the pasture, the crewmen of Telemachus from the ship. The smith arrived, bearing the tools of his trade, hammer and anvil, and the precision tongs that he handled fiery gold with, and Athena came as a god comes, numinous to the rites. The smith now gloved each horn in a pure foil, beaten out of the gold that Nestor gave him, a glory and a delight for the goddess's eyes, while Ecophorn and Stratios held the horns. Aretos brought clear lustral water in a bowl quivering with fresh cut flowers, a basket of barley in his other hand. Thrasymedes, who could stand his ground in more, stood ready with a sharp two bladed axe for the stroke of sacrifice, and Perseus held a bowl for the blood and Now Nestor strewing the barley grains and water drops, pronounced his invocation to Athena and burned a pinch of bristles from the victim. When prayers were said and all the grain was scattered, great-hearted Thrasymedes, in a flash swung the axe at one blow cutting through the neck tendons. The heifer's spirit failed. Then all the women gave a wail of joy, but the men still held the heifer, shored her up from the wide earth where the living go their ways until Pesistratos cut her throat across. The black blood ran and life ebbed from her marrow. The carcass now sank down, and they disjointed shoulder and thigh bone, wrapping them in fat. The passage goes on. I give it here at length to underline a previously described theory that the works of Homer were entertainment, yes, but they were also mystical books. Certainly, they were used that way in late antiquity, and they were possibly even religious manuals. Otherwise, you might ask if the people were already familiar with the minutiae of sacrifice— Why would Homer describe the steps of the sacrifice so explicitly? More sacrifices will be made and described in detail throughout the epic. Now, when Telemachus arrives at the palace of Menelaus later, the people here are also gathered for a great feast, because one daughter is being sent away to marry the heir of Achilles, and a son of Menelaus is also going to marry. Arriving as anonymous strangers, Telemachus and Nestor's son are welcomed as sacred guests to the feast. Menelaus, the red-haired king, as Homer calls him, Menelaus overhears Telemachus whispering to his friend that the palace is as beautiful as that of Zeus must be. Here, Menelaus does himself credit and quickly corrects the young man that nothing can compare to the wealth and glory of Zeus. Arrogance in ancient Greece was a deadly sin, even though this was a supremely virile and warlike culture. Even the greatest men were expected to render honor and submission to the gods. Recall from the Iliad how quickly even men in the heat of savagery, like Achilles, would stop in their tracks when the gods made known their wishes. Menelaus speaks of the war and the troubles that followed, but eventually remarks on how he misses most one man from among all that he met in the war, how he misses that great warrior Odysseus. Now, Telemachus at this point breaks down weeping, and Menelaus realizes who the boy is. Here we are visited by another familiar face from the Iliad when Helen enters the room. She is still beautiful, though decades have passed since Paris stole her away for her beauty. Once she stood with the Trojans, but was rescued, if you want to call it that, from the ruins of that city and brought back eventually to her husband's realm. She immediately sees the guests and remarks that the one weeping must surely be the son of Odysseus, she having known that warrior as well. Soon all are in tears moved by the unexpected encounter with ghosts of the past. They all agree to put off any long talks until the morning when all is slept. Helen drugs the wine that Telemachus is drinking to help him find slumber, while she tells a quick tale about an encounter she had with Odysseus during the war. According to Helen's recollection, Odysseus infiltrated Troy during the war on a reconnaissance mission. He beat himself to a pulp and covered himself in rags so as to appear a beggar, but Helen knew him and questioned him. She bathed him and anointed him and swore not to report his presence until he got away, which he did after killing several Trojans, making his escape with what he had learned. Helen also takes the opportunity to assure us that she had by then repented of her tryst with Paris and longed to return home to her husband, a man without defect in form or mind, as she puts it. An excellent tale, my dear, continues Menelaus, and then he proceeds to recount another event at the end of the war in which both Odysseus and Helen figure. When he and Odysseus and several other heroes were inside the hollow horse, as Menelaus puts it, the famous Trojan horse which the Greeks used to finally overcome the Trojan defenses, when when the Trojans came and made their first inspection of that horse, Helen at that time walked around the horse, patting its sides and calling out the names of the Greek heroes, imitating their wives' voices. This caused all of the men inside to stir with emotion, and one, Antiklos, almost cried out, but Odysseus, with his strong hands, held the man's mouth shut and saved them from discovery. Menelaus does not say anything directly, only this tale to remind his wayward wife that he does not trust her description of her own motives Menelaus then tells an interesting story about his adventures in exile in Egypt. Menelaus came into contact with a sea nymph and complained of his struggle in returning home. She tells him that her father is Proteus, the old sea god who serves under Poseidon, and tells him how to capture her father where he lives in caverns hollowed out by the sea amid flippered seals and to draw the truth out of him to determine why Poseidon will not grant a successful voyage back to Greece. It is no easy task, because the old men of the sea can take many forms, and while Menelaus and three capable officers hold him down, Proteus changes, his, changes forms into lion, leopard, serpent, a tree. He even changes into the form of water itself. But Menelaus and his men somehow manage to hold on, and Proteus finally divulges the cause of Poseidon's wrath. And the cause is this, that Menelaus did not make sacrifice to honor Zeus and the other gods before leaving for home. And if this perplexes you, then welcome to the confusing divine morality of Greek mythology. Yes, you might be thinking of how Agamemnon did in fact stay to sacrifice to the gods and yet was betrayed upon arrival home, and how Odysseus returned to join the same Agamemnon and was legendarily delayed in his own return journey. And yet Nestor, per his own recounting, skipped the sacrifice and came home quickly to enjoy his golden years with his plundered wealth, I have spoken before about the need to let go of the linear reasoning that we try to apply to our own lives and our own modern perspectives when we approach ancient Greek culture. They simply thought differently. They perceived the world differently. And the best we can do is try to open our minds to their apparently chaotic thought. Now, Menelaus takes advantage of his momentary power over that living God, Proteus, and he ekes out a little more information before letting go. What has happened to my companions in war, he asks. And Proteus reveals that Ajax died at sea, suffering the god's retribution for his insolence, that Agamemnon was dead at the hands of his wife's lover, and that Odysseus, Laertes' son, after years of sojourn at sea, now resides on an island with the nymph Calypso. Menelaus wishes to delay Telemachus and and honor him more, but the young man, possessed finally of some information about his father, insists on returning home right away. We are at the end of book four and already over half an hour into the podcast, but if I have labored over some details so far, it was with good reason. Homer, in these four books, has connected the tale to the Iliad and provided some welcome details about its aftermath. The death of Agamemnon, the travails of his brother Menelaus before returning home with wealth and wife, the splendor of Nestor's halls, and the fates of heroes such as Ajax. He has also set the stage quite well for the denouement of the whole epic poem, Eventually, Odysseus will return home to find suitors disgracing his estate and his memory, and we now have the setting for that confrontation clearly described. All that remains now is to tell the tale of his return. The next eight books will relate all that, and they contain some of the most memorable portions of the whole tale. After Athena once again complains to her father Zeus that Odysseus remains trapped on the island of Calypso, the king of the gods bends quickly to her will and sends Hermes to tell Calypso that now it is time to free Odysseus, and Zeus will brook no opposition. Calypso hasn't endured on her beautiful island for time immemorial because she flaunts the gods' will, so after a quick complaint about the gods not allowing love between mortal and divine, she quickly accedes and lets Odysseus know the good news. She offers him, one more time, immortality and a life with her on the island. Odysseus notes her beauty as far superior to that of his wife, but he can no longer bear being without her. Calypso proposes to send him off in style, with instructions for building a raft out of island trees and supplying him with provisions for the voyage. Odysseus, though, is no stranger to the caprice of this woman. After all these years, a helping hand? Oh, goddess, what guile is hidden here? He demands that she vow his safety before he puts to sea, suspecting that she will somehow harm him in his departure. But Calypso is, in the end, his ally. She provides tools for his labors, and he constructs a raft, complete with sails, over the course of several days, and sets out to sea, with Calypso even conjuring up a warm breeze to carry him away from shore. But Odysseus is not at sea long before Poseidon takes notice. Though he knows that the gods have chosen to save the man, he sends a furious gale to chastise Odysseus one last time. Our hero is only saved when a sea nymph named Aino counsels him to abandon ship and gives him a sacred veil to protect him in the seas. Eventually, Odysseus submits to this wisdom and throws himself into the swelling sea, hoping without hope for survival. Of course, Athena intervenes to send a favorable current to lead the man without his knowing to a safe landing. After two days adrift in the ocean, somehow managing to stay afloat with the aid of the nymph's veil, Odysseus washes ashore on the island of Phaeacia, frequently identified today with the island of Corfu, off the northwest coast of the Greek mainland, near modern-day Albania. This is actually to the north of Ithaca. Phaeacia in Homer is presented as a sort of utopia. Notably, the Phaeacians did not participate in the Trojan War, and they spared themselves that horror. Here, Odysseus encounters first Nausicaa, a beautiful young princess of the island's royal family. Nausicaa is something new in the Homeric epic so far. She is simply an uncomplicated, pretty young girl who feeds Odysseus from her own provisions during their brief encounter on the beach. And she does this without ever knowing his identity, as Odysseus does not reveal it until the time is ripe. Odysseus encounters her, encounters her anonymously, speaking, appearing only to her and her playful friends as some ragamuffin washed up on the beach. Nausicaa takes Odysseus home with her; she has pity on him, and soon the Greek warrior finds himself at table with the very king of the Phaeacians, Alcinous. He is aided here in maneuvering the social obstacles of high society by Athena, who is equally at his side when lost at sea or in battle with the Trojans years before. And Odysseus is also ever faithful to his patroness goddess. Nausicaa initially leaves the disguised hero of the Trojan War near her father's palace in a grove dedicated to Athena, having given him instructions for how to approach her mother and possibly appeal for assistance with his journey home. In that grove, waiting, Odysseus prays to his goddess. Hear me, O unwearied child of royal Zeus. O listen to me now, thou so aloof while the earthshaker wrecked and battered me may I find love and mercy among these people. Odysseus has nothing to offer and sacrifice but his heart, and he does so here, and Athena hears him. She remains with him, usually in disguise, in order to avoid offending Poseidon throughout his adventures. Odysseus appears as an aged and weathered sailor when he throws himself down before Arete, the queen of Phaecia, and begs passage home on a ship. The royals demonstrate their wisdom, their wisdom praised throughout Greece in respecting the rules of hospitality, and they invite their unexpected guest to a feast. Odysseus's fellow diners, among them the king and queen, are curious about his identity. He fails to provide a name, but only tells them about his most recent adventure with Calypso. Here we learn Odysseus's perspective on his recent story. That Zeus split and sank his ship with a lightning bolt, drowning his comrades. That he then clutched the wreckage of his ship and floated for nine days until he came ashore at Ogygia, the island of Calypso. This enchantress took him in, promised him immortality and enduring love in her sea caves. And though he endured seven years with this great beauty as her lover, he never consented in his heart. Quote he then explains his departure from her island and slightly edits the story of his arrival on the shores of the present island. The king, Alcinous, is so impressed with the stranger's story and his bearing that he offers his daughter, Nausicaa, to him, that Odysseus should become his son-in-law. However, all that said, he also promises to send the man home if that is what he wishes. Odysseus rejoices at the opportunity. The next morning, there is a sacrificial ceremony, again, that is apparently to commemorate the departure of Odysseus. And this time again, Homer provides a lot of detail about the ceremony, focusing this time on the movements of the participants and less on the slaughter of the animal victims, which include sheep, pigs, and oxen. After the feasting, the young men begin to play athletic games as was typical for Greeks of this time. Recall how the army celebrated a battlefield victory at Troy before the end of the Iliad with a variety of Olympic-like competitions. The Phaeacians do the same now. When one young athlete provokes Odysseus, suggesting that he's too old to compete and probably did little more in life than pilot ships from port to port anyway, our hero grabs a discus and launches it farther than anyone present can even challenge. Odysseus then rebukes the young men who challenged him, but Alcinoos, the king, tranquilizes the situation by bringing in a harper to sing them a song about the gods the bard then recounts a familiar story about Ares and Aphrodite, and how the cuckold god Hephaestus once captured the adulterous couple in chains he forged himself. Later, at the same event, the minstrel sings of the conquest of Troy. When the king sees that Odysseus is moved to tears by this tale, he stops the proceedings and insists that his guest finally come clean and reveal his identity. And so, in book nine of the Odyssey, Odysseus finally begins to recount the troubles that delayed his return home after the fall of Troy. And now we hear the familiar stories, of the famous encounters which some of us may know even without reading the Odyssey. The Cyclops, the Lotus Eaters, Scylla and Charybdis, The Siren Song, and Odysseus Tied to the Mast, The Dreadful Witch, Circe. The four books in which Odysseus recounts his adventures, books 9 to 12, are in many ways distinct from the other books of the Odyssey. They are told, of course, in the first person, but they also seem to depict Odysseus differently. The, the, The Odysseus found in these books is brash, maybe even a little foolhardy, taking seemingly foolish risks, endangering himself and his men for no apparent reason and generally exercising poor judgment, one might consider this a sign that the tales found here are imported from some already existing cycle of tales about the Trojan War hero. But perhaps they are also intended to demonstrate the growth which Odysseus has experienced, because the character of the poem's hero in the present, as he is nearing reunion with his kingdom and his family, his character that at that time seems much more sober, much wiser. There's something else about the character of Odysseus that we should take note of. In his telling of his departure from Troy, he relates that he and his small fleet came back across the Aegean and immediately attacked a small town on the eastern coast of Thrace, a northern Greek realm. Unprovoked, Odysseus and his crew killed all the men and enslaved the women, but they delayed their departure and were later routed by an army that gathered in the surrounding countryside after they pillaged the town. Six men from each ship are missing as they pull away from the port town. Now, Odysseus tells this part of the story very matter-of-factly, and those of us like me who may idolize certain historical and pseudo-historical figures like Odysseus or Heracles or Theseus or Alexander the Great or Leonidas, the Spartan king, we all have to come to grips with things like this. Odysseus feels no shame, no compunction in telling this part of the story. He believes in right and wrong. He has a moral code, but this code does not prevent him from descending on undefended villages, killing the able-bodied men, and enslaving the women, surely to be brutalized in sexual rampages carried out later. You can't make this episode right, and achieving the sort of cognitive dissonance required to appreciate the figures of our human past is not something I'll spend time on in this podcast, but I did want to highlight not for the first or last time, the ease which with, with which some otherwise very admirable figures, the ease with which they can transition from acts of depraved violence to moments of beautiful tenderness with someone else, as Odysseus will do again when he slaughters the suitors and then cautiously seeks a gentle reconciliation with his wife, with his wife Penelope. Anyway. Odysseus relates that he nearly made it home in a matter of days. His fleet rounded the Cape of Miletus at the southern extreme of the Greek peninsula, just the last leg of the journey northward up the western coast of Greece to reach his home island of Ithaca left, but winds blew him off course for ten days until they reached the island of the Lotus Eaters. He sends three men out to scout the land, but when they don't return, he finds them chilling with the locals, munching lotus flowers, and forgetting the urgency of their homeward journey. Odysseus forcefully drives them back to the ships. Next, they come to the land of the Cyclops. Odysseus and his men roam a desert island near the Cyclops mainland in search of game. They feast on wild goats, and then Odysseus and one ship's crew cross over to the mainland to explore. They find a cave full of the stores belonging to one Cyclops, mutton and goat meat and cheese. The 12 men with Odysseus wish to steal these goods and return to ship, but Odysseus, while wise and shrewdly calculating in so many other scenarios, demonstrates one of his occasional bouts of erratic decision-making. He decides that they'll wait in the cave, for he wishes to see the great man who lives there. Of course, the cyclops, the one-eyed giant, returns with his herd of sheep and goats and seals the cave with a huge slab of stone, too great for any number of men to move. Odysseus introduces himself and his men and vocally hopes that the giant will respect the rule of hospitality mandated by Zeus himself. The cyclops scoffs at this. His father is Poseidon, and he cares not for the will of Zeus. And then the giant slays and eats two men of Odysseus's company. In the morning, he kills and eats two more. The next night, after the giant returns and eats two more of Odysseus's dwindling company, Odysseus gives the Cyclops, Polyphemus by name, some of a powerful wine that he brought with him on the journey. Here, the Cyclops asks for Odysseus' name and our hero lies, telling his captor that his name is Otis, O-U-T-I-S, or nobody in English. Soon drunk on the potent beverage, the cyclops falls asleep, and Odysseus and four men stab Polyphemus in his one great eye with a fire-sharpened spear made from the trunk of an olive tree in the giant's woodpile. When he cries out in thunderous agony, his cyclops' neighbors call out to him, asking who has injured him. When he replies that Otis, nobody, has injured him, they laugh it off and fail to aid him. In the morning, Odysseus and his remaining men escape by hiding under and among the herd that leaves the cave with Polyphemus. But again, Odysseus is not satisfied with his escape. He makes another strange error of judgment. Reunited with his ship, he taunts the giant and reveals his true name as they push away from the shore. And then the giant launches a huge boulder at them, using the sound of Odysseus's voice to guide his shot, which almost hits and destroys the ship. His sailors scold Odysseus for this foolishness. As they sail away from danger, Polyphemus prays to Poseidon to punish Odysseus for blinding him, to keep him long and far from home, even if destiny should decide that he should ultimately return home. After this, Odysseus finds refuge for a month on the island of Aeolia, where he recounts the entire tale of Troy to the local king before sailing away again with a royal gift, a bag full of storm winds. But while Odysseus sleeps, his men, curious about the bag, open it up, and they are once again blown off course, all the way back to Aeolia, just as they near Ithaca. Scolded and driven off by the king, they find themselves next in the land of the Lestragonians, another tribe of giants who terrorize them and kill more of Odysseus's crew. They make their next landfall on the island of Circe. Once again, Odysseus uses dubious judgment and sends half his men off into the wilderness of that island to explore. All but one Circe turns into pigs. The survivors, the survivor, the lone survivor returns to Odysseus with the story and now our hero sets forth alone to confront the witch. Along the way, the god Hermes appears, appears and gives him an antidote to the drug that Circe administers to her victim. Thus prepared, Odysseus is able to withstand her potion, and then he sleeps with her, having extracted a promise to do him no harm. Later, he convinces her to restore his men. The crew, reunited, weeps with emotion, and Circe, in offering refuge and respite to Odysseus, addresses him thus, Son of Laertes and the gods of old, Odysseus, master, mariner, and soldier, Throughout this book, Circe will direct several soliloquies at our hero, and she will open every single one of them with this extended epithet. Odysseus and his crew end up staying with Circe for a year before his men remind him of home. All this time, Odysseus is enjoying her bed. He finally, though, implores her assistance in returning home, and she complies and also provides him with provisions for the journey. She complies, but not without warning Odysseus that it will not be easy. First, he and his crew will have to traverse the world of the dead, the cold homes of death and pale Persephone, as Fitzgerald renders it. There, Odysseus must meet with the shade, or ghost, of the prophet Tiresias, a prophet of the ancient Greek world who figures prominently in many myths. Circe explains to him how to perform a sacrifice while he is there, a sacrifice that will attract not just the ancient prophet, but also the companions lost in war and other famous dead men and women, so that he may inquire about their lives and deaths. For this purpose, she gives him a black ewe and a black ram to be sacrificed there in the land of the dead. By this time in the story, we have long been in an imaginary geography. Some scholars have tried to identify Circe's island with some regions near Italy, but without any real certainty. Odysseus's journey to the world of, de- of the dead takes him first to the realm and region of the men of winter, hidden in mist and cloud. This might make you think that Homer knew something of northern climes, such as Scandinavia, let's say, but there are no other details to suggest that he or other Greeks of his time actually knew anything about such faraway lands. Perhaps such description came secondhand from travelers who had been so far north, though. Anyway, arrived in the land of the dead, Odysseus and crew dig a pit and pour around it libations of milk and honey and cut the throats of the animals so that their blood pours into the pit, where it may accumulate in a deep pool so that the dead may approach and drink. Book 11 is a litany of dead friends and heroes who come to see Odysseus in the land of the dead, phantoms emitted from the crowd of shades that gathers greedily around the pool of blood. Odysseus sees the shade of his mother, though she still lived when he left for the war, but he holds her off with a bared sword until he is finally approached by Tiresias, who, like Circe, addresses Odysseus as son of Laertes and the gods of old. As he does with all with whom he wishes to speak here in the land of death, Odysseus allows Tiresias' shade to kneel and drink from the pool of blood. Then the prophetic ghost tells Odysseus how to navigate his future, that he will next come to the land where Helios, the sun god, keeps his cattle. Provided Odysseus does not bother these cattle, good sailing will bring him home to Ithaca soon. Otherwise, he will lose all his remaining companions in strife and come home alone to his family only after the passage of many years, full of longing, and he will return to a land divided by insolent men eating your livestock as they court your lady, he says. Next, Odysseus finally speaks with his mother. Their interaction is is as touching and tragic as you might imagine, but the tragedy is not complete until Odysseus, overcome with emotion after hearing her news about his wife and his child and father still in Ithaca, Odysseus tries to embrace his mother, only to find that, quote, she went sifting through my hands implacable, unquote. The dead may speak, but we may never touch them again. All mortals meet this judgment when they die. No flesh and bone are here. Dreamlike, the soul flies, insubstantial, Odysseus's mother tells him in her last speech to him. Many more shades follow. Odysseus meets with or reacquaints himself with a long list of famous Greeks, among them the mother of Oedipus, cursed to marry her own son, and Leda, she who lay with the swan Zeus, and Ariadne, daughter of Minos, king of Crete, who eloped with Theseus. Actually, the number of women's ghosts is another surprising thing here in Homer's treatment of gender in the Odyssey as compared to the Iliad. Numerous female personages of fame come to kneel at Odysseus's pool of blood and speak with him. And the first half of Odysseus's recounting of the land of the dead is dedicated almost entirely to women. After confessing that the number of women's shades that he saw are too many to name, Odysseus lets the story rest. The Phaeacians, whom he has regaled with this tale, are amazed— the king, Alcinous bids him to go on. So Odysseus tells of the men whom he saw there as well. First came Agamemnon, who warns Odysseus to land on Ithaca in secret because the day of faithful wives is gone forever. Then appears Achilles and others fallen in combat before Troy. Achilles tells Odysseus rather, tells his fallen comrade Achilles that surely, with his great fame ensured for ages, that he must rest easy here in the land of the dead. Achilles dispels this notion quickly in a memorable passage. He says, I would rather be a slave in a poor man's house than be king of the dead. After the fallen combatants of the Trojan War pass, Odysseus sees Minos, king of Crete, and Orion the hunter, but not all the dead simply wander in the shadows here. Some are punished for their evil deeds, such as Sisyphus, who rolls a great stone uphill only to have it roll back down And he starts the same task over eternally. Then Odysseus sees something quite odd. He sees the phantom of Heracles, who is not really there, apparently, for the physical Heracles, according to Homer in this passage, revels eternally with the gods. Perhaps Homer is accommodating this part of the story, which may date from several centuries before this time, with a contemporary view of the afterlife, which by then had granted some sort of blissful life to the greatest of heroes in a place others will name the Elysian Fields. Odysseus desires to, desires to stay longer and speak with a multitude of the ancients, such as Theseus, but suddenly he is overcome by the fear that, quote, Persephone had brought some darker from some darker hell some Saurian death's head, unquote shocking departure into horror here odysseus's thought of some fierce lizard perhaps a dragon that might come for him in that land of night quickly he and his men return to the ship and push out to sea the travelers then return to the island of Circe. they carouse a bit and odysseus takes another chance to lie with the witch whose pillow talk consists of solid instructions for his return home because if he is to follow taresius's guidance he must find a way first to the land of helios Circe tells him about the sirens, who will seduce men with their song to crash on the rocks. Next, a rocky sea realm through which not even birds may pass. Then they must try to thread the needle and navigate between two sea troubles, Scylla and Charybdis. The former a tentacled monster eager to grab passing sailors, the latter a great sucking whirlpool that can swallow ships whole. Circe counsels him to sail closer to Scylla and risk her tentacles rather than go close to the maelstrom of Charybdis and risk the whole ship. Odysseus wants to know how to fight the monster, but Circe tells him there's no hope in combat. They must simply row hard, and some lives will be lost in the passage. Only then will they come to the land where Helios keeps his beef cattle. Many know the adventure which follows. Odysseus, tied to the that he might hear the song of the sirens without being able to obey them while his men, their ears stuffed with wax, obediently row past the danger, and then the horror of Scylla tearing men from their oars as they pass. We may be returning at this point in the story to real geography, as some identify the strait between Scylla and Charybdis with the strait of Messina, between northeast Sicily and the toe of Italy's boot. Finally, nearing the land of Helios, wherever that may be, the men will no longer listen to Odysseus' advice and cannot resist slaughtering and feasting, upon the cattle of helios this offended sun god then complains to zeus who permits the men a week of feasting though there are strange omens such as animal carcasses even those already roasted lowing like living cows once at sea the ship encounters rough weather and finally zeus lets fly with a bolt and splinters it sending all into the turmoil of the churning waters Odysseus alone survives, clinging to wreckage, but the current brings him back to Scylla and Charybdis. Somehow he survives passage alone and is floating along on his piece of his ship's timber and comes ashore at Ogygia, the Isle of Calypso, where he lingers for many years before embarking on the present journey which has brought him before the Phaeacians. Phaeacian sailors take Odysseus all the way back to Ithaca. On the long journey, the hero falls asleep, and Odysseus is left ashore on his own island by these friends with treasures at his sleeping side. Poseidon, angry that the Phaeacians have short-circuited his revenge against Odysseus, he pleads with Zeus to make things right, and Zeus does so, waiting until the Phaeacian ship is within sight of its home before turning it to stone. The king of Phaeacia, seeing this event, shuts off his island from the world and forbids the landing of all outsiders. Odysseus, meanwhile, wakes on the shore of some strange island, as he thinks, not recognizing his own land. But once again, Athena appears, disguised as a shepherd, and she reveals to him that he is on Ithaca. Odysseus pretends to be a nameless warrior who left Troy with plunder and was later abandoned here by Phoenician sailors. At this, Athena smiles and reveals herself, caressing the face of her favorite liar. And she also takes up the reins of the plot again, moving things along at her own pace. She explains the present situation on Ithaca regarding the suitors and Penelope and Telemachus. She promises to bring Telemachus home from Sparta safely and also helps disguise Odysseus as an old man, bent and gnarled in tattered clothes, supporting himself with a staff. Following the instructions of the gray-eyed goddess, Odysseus first goes to stay with a swineherd, that is, a keeper of pigs. This swineherd, Eumaeus by name, is a longtime family servant of Odysseus's, and somewhat strangely, he is often addressed in the second person, just as Patroclus was in the Iliad. Occasionally, throughout the chapter, Homus prefaces the remarks of this swineherd in this way, "'And, O oh my swineherd, you replied, Eumaeus,' As I mentioned in the Odyssey, there's no explanation for the why the. the or as I mentioned in the Iliad, there's no explanation for why the swineherd is so treated here. Still, I think it's characteristic of the distinctions between the two books that it is great and powerful warriors, Patroclus and Menelaus, who are thus spoken of in the Iliad, but in the Odyssey, it is just a simple swineherd who is given such an honor. Finally, in book 16, father and son finally come together when Telemachus safely returns from his journey and lands in Ithaca once again. Father and son meet first as strangers. Tall, princely Telemachus appears in the swineherd's doorway. He is gracious, though, to the weather-beaten stranger who is his father in disguise. Anonymous in his rags, Odysseus has a chance to listen to his son now as he explains his thoughts about his fate and the situation in town to the swineherd. The father is impressed. Athena removes his disguise when father and son are later alone, apart from the swineherd. Telemachus is reluctant to believe at first. After all, he has nothing to recognize because he has no memory of his father. Still, the two embrace and weep. Odysseus cuts to the chase. He wants to know the number of the suitors and their descriptions so that he may determine how to kill them all. Telemachus is hesitant. He knows the fighting fame of his father, but surely the suitors are too many for just the two of them. But Odysseus returns that they have Athena's arm over them. There's nothing to fear, and so the two go out over the layout go over the layout of the house, the locations of weapons and armor. Meanwhile, in town the suitors, aware that Telemachus has returned, plot to assassinate him, even as they stand together in his own home talking, within earshot of Penelope's servants, who let her know that her son is now in mortal danger. Father and son return separately to town. Prior to Odysseus departing the swineherd's cabin, he has a memorable and emotional encounter with Argos, a dog who who was just a puppy when Odysseus sailed away. Aged and decrepit, the dog does his best to wag his tail and welcome the voice of his long-lost master. Then the old dog dies, and Odysseus hides his grief. Our hero infiltrates his own estate disguised as a beggar, his hand out for alms. This is a classic ploy for the old hero who frequently used disguises and stealth to spy out dangers for the army at Troy. What stuns the reader, or it stunned me anyway, is the way that Odysseus will put up with so much ridicule and abuse in order to further his ends. Knowing that he needs time to study his opponents and to secure resources for the coming fight, he tolerates so much from the vicious suitors, who make jokes about the decrepit old beggar in their midst. Antinous, the leader and perhaps greatest bastard among the suitors, even throws a wooden stool at Odysseus and strikes him on the shoulder. Of course, the suitors are just condemning themselves in the eyes of the gods and in the ears of the people listening to this epic close to some 3,000 years ago, with, with such frightful mistreatment of a guest. Even the other suitors are mostly shocked and disturbed by the abuse, surely sensing the omen in such an act so contrary to the will of the gods. It gets worse for Odysseus. There, on his very own property, he is set against another beggar that enters the house and comes into conflict with him. The suitors are gleeful at the idea of setting the two beggars to fight before them. Of course, Odysseus comes out on top, shattering the jawbone of the foolish tramp with an uppercut to the face nevertheless honorable odysseus does try to give one of the suitors who does not seem so bad a chance to survive he warns him that the master of the house will soon return and bring bloody vengeance with him to no avail the young man does not depart and odysseus will have no mercy on him in the final showdown the servant girls of odysseus's house many of whom have been reveling with the suitors and sleeping with them these servants also condemn themselves, one even going so far as to cruelly insult Odysseus in his beggar's disguise. Odysseus gives them fair warning too in this violent retort. One minute, let me tell Telemachus how you talk and haul, you slut. He'll cut your arms and legs off. Finally, as night falls, father and son prepare for the coming slaughter, setting aside arms and armor in convenient locations. Their work is lit magically by some celestial glow, and Telemachus rightly recognizes this as light from Athena, who has been at Odysseus's side invisibly throughout this passage of the story, encouraging and advising him. After the preparations, Telemachus goes to sleep in his tower, while Odysseus waits in the darkness of the hall, thinking about revenge. Then Penelope emerges from her chamber, and husband and wife meet for the first time in this epic, But Odysseus does not reveal himself in the encounter, as he did at the end of his first encounter with Telemachus. The two, lovers long separated, speak as strangers. Odysseus, disguised as the beggar, tells of his life on Crete and a fictional encounter he had with the Lord Odysseus on his way to the war nearly 20 years before. He speaks with such detail that he brings Penelope to tears. He pushes the issue, perhaps a little, when he assures her that Odysseus will soon return. She orders a bath and a bed for him. When his old nurse bathes Odysseus, she recognizes his scars, and she knows him when her hands wash his body. You are Odysseus, she whispers, and turns to tell Penelope, who is standing not far away. But Odysseus grabs his old nurse by the throat and threatens to kill her if she gives him up now. Before their first reunion ends, before Penelope ascends to her chamber to sleep again, the lonely queen recounts for the stranger, her disguised husband, a dream that haunts her. In this dream, twenty geese are feeding beside her house when suddenly a great eagle descends and slays them all in a murderous neck-breaking fury before revealing itself to be her husband. In this exchange, many literary commentators suggest that Penelope knows who the stranger is and is trying to tell Odysseus, or that she at least senses it subconsciously. And the hesitation on both their parts to remove the veil here is probably more than strategic, more than a need to maintain secrecy from the surrounding suitors. Here, I think, is a keen understanding of human sexual and emotional relations that that two lovers so long separated with so many events, memories, and obstacles between them cannot reunite healthily, properly, at lightning speed. No, the two must reenact, as it were, their courtship, must come together slowly in stages if there is to be a true bond renewed between the two. Odysseus assures her that the dream is indeed a sign, but Penelope doubts and then provokes Odysseus, telling him that tomorrow is the last day of her mourning, She will declare an athletic contest. She shall line up 12 axe heads and award herself to the man who can shoot through all 12 axe sockets in a row with a single arrow. Essentially, Odysseus is challenged to win Penelope all over again to meet the challenge of 20 men and pass his queen's tests all over. And how does Odysseus reply? Odysseus will be here, honorable lady. The last five books of the Odyssey contain the climax and denouement of the entire tale. The actual test of the bow does not happen until book 21. The events and material in between in many ways just underline previous themes that the suitors and many of the house servants, male and female, are unjust, treacherous, and inhospitable. When the time comes to test the suitors, they learn that there is a key piece of the challenge they must not only fire an arrow through twelve axe sockets lined up in one shot, they must also do so with Odysseus's old hunting bow, which he left behind before leaving for the Trojan War. They must string the bow themselves too, and Odysseus's bow was famously hard to string, requiring the greatest of strength. Before any suitor might try, Homer includes another brilliant piece of suspense. Just as Penelope appeared on the verge of accepting Odysseus, but did not declare herself, just so Telemachus demonstrates his capability of replacing his father, even though he does not actually carry out the usurpation. Telemachus, before any of the suitors, picks up the bow, and after a mighty struggle, after three attempts, he is about to string the bow successfully on the fourth try. Only his father, Odysseus, sees this impending success, and as Homer says, noticeably stiffens in response, and this subtle body language causes Telemachus to back off, to fail on purpose. The good son makes way for his father one last time to let him lead and be the man of the house. The suitors laugh and line up to try. All fail. Though some of them try a variety of means to complete the bow, none manage to string it, let alone fire an arrow through the axes. Their degenerate leader, Antinous, suggests that they relax, rest, For the night and try again the next day odysseus in disguise as the beggar expresses his desire to attempt the shot after much disparagement from the suitors telemachus and his mother convince the suitors to stand back and let the old man try to the great shock of the suitors odysseus in one deft move strings the bow he plucks the string like a harpist and the suitors mid mockery fall silent then there's a thunder crack outside, a clear omen from Zeus. In a flash, Odysseus knocks an arrow and lets it fly, clean through the twelve axe sockets, and I'll let Homer himself tell the rest. Then quietly Odysseus said, Telemachus, the stranger you welcomed in your hall has not disgraced you. I did not miss. Neither did I take all day, stringing the bow. My hand and eye are sound. And so Telemachus steps forward to his father's side at that point. "'armored in bronze, wielding sword and spear. "'A bloodbath follows, "'one that takes us back to the combat scenes "'of the Iliad and their gory descriptions. "'Odysseus begins by slaying Antinous "'with the first arrow shot. "'The other suitors shout in dismay and promise revenge, "'but all remain quiet "'when Odysseus prefaces the ensuing massacre thus. "'You yellow dogs, "'you thought I'd never make it home from the land of Troy. "'You took my house to plunder.' Twisted my maids to serve your beds. You dared bid for my wife while I was still alive. Contempt was all you had for the gods who rule wide heaven. Contempt for what men say of you hereafter. Your last hour has come. You die in blood. And die they do. One by one as the battle rages throughout the home of Odysseus. Only two men among the crowd are spared. Near the end of the rampage, two men beg Odysseus for mercy. The first is a diviner someone who served the spiritual needs of the suitors he read their sacrifices for signs and so on odysseus slays the man with no hesitation the second is a poet a minstrel he saves that man now many an atheist has read this portion of the story with glee noting that odysseus kills the priest without a thought but saves the poet later odysseus also spares the family herald Athena, of course, is there the whole time, at first just an encouraging voice, and later she's there in visible form. She turns the arrows and spears aimed at father and son and preserves them throughout the battle. Not finished, Odysseus and Telemachus, with the help of their old nurse, Eurycleia, round up all the servant girls who lay with the suitors and force them to clean up the gory disaster. Then, one by one, Odysseus places their heads in nooses and hauls them into the air to let them dance one last time before they breathe their final breaths. As with the Iliad, there is much dedicated to the post-climatic part of the story. In the 23rd book, Odysseus and Penelope, with still some more hesitation, finally embrace and make love. And as husband and wife again, the two talk, and Odysseus tells his story. And the suitors? What of them? Dead, their souls seep down to the underworld, amid ghosts and squeaking bats, as Homer tells it. And there, the narrative briefly departs and depicts the shades of Achilles and Agamemnon once again, now meeting one another and reflecting on their lives. They also meet the souls of the newly arrived suitors, who tell them of how Odysseus returned, how his wife connived against them, and how he and his sons slayed them all. Agamemnon, in the darkness of the underworld, rejoices. And finally, The son of Laertes is reunited with Laertes. Odysseus and Telemachus, and two trustworthy servants, go out to the countryside, expecting violent revenge from the families of the dead suitors. They head to the farm outside town where Laertes, once the proud king of Ithaca, had long ago retired. Odysseus, being who he is, he approaches his father, who is laboring in the dirt, he approaches him and initially identifies himself as a stranger to the island. but. Seeing his father's emotion when he speaks of his lost son, Odysseus cannot hold back any longer, and the two embrace. O father, Odysseus says, I am he, twenty years gone, and here I have come again to my own land. Later, when a portion of the townsmen, many of them relatives of the slain suitors, when they come to Laertes' farm for revenge, Odysseus gathers his son and his father and their servants together, armed and armored, to make one last stand athena seeing her favorite warrior once again outnumbered appeals to her father zeus and then darts down to stop the battle just as it is beginning after odysseus has slain one of his opponents and the tale ends abruptly as athena appears in the form of mentor one more time and arbitrates peace between the contending parties So the tale has come to an end. The tale of the Trojan War began at a celestial wedding attended by gods and heroes. The Iliad began with the rage of Achilles on a foreign beach and open warfare between the gods. The Odyssey ends in an armed scuffle in the countryside. Achilles fought his last battle in the Iliad with a shield crafted by the god Hephaestus himself. He slays the great Trojan hero Hector in an earth-shaking battle. Odysseus fights his last battle with second-hand armor and weapons scrounged from his modest estate. He slays an angry neighbor who is out for blood vengeance. The story arc really reflects another key distinction between the two books. While the Odyssey retains many elements of the fantastic, it also demonstrates a gradual return to reality, to the mundane world anyway, just as Odysseus himself slowly returns to real geography and to the real world after his episode in The Land of the Dead the man who held the shades of the heroic dead at bay with his sword while a chosen few drank the blood of his sacrifices before revealing the secrets of death. This same man ends his story in a glorified knife fight with his rustic neighbors. This podcast could go on forever without leaving the topic of the Iliad and the Odyssey. There is so much to discover, to understand, to interpret. It is and its possible reflections on the culture of the Late Bronze Age and Mycenae, the meaning of the depictions of mythological figures, the myriad differences between the two texts, and so on. Before I go, however, I I do want to close out this portion of the podcast series, and I want to point out some aspects of the two books which I think will pertain most significantly in the study of our Western traditions, things that link them to other topics and materials that we've already covered or will cover in the future. One simple but interesting trait of this story, particularly the odyssey, is the doubling of characters and events in the text. In the early books of the story of Israel in the Bible, for example, we find numerous doublings, stories either retold entirely in different places in the text or more commonly, stories with similar themes and plots recast with different characters. For example, there's the stories, there's the two stories of Abraham sharing his wife, once with the Pharaoh and once with Abimelech, a Canaanite king, or there's Abraham's conflict and then pact with Abimelech, and then his son makes nearly an identical conflict and pact with the same king. In the Odyssey, we also see significant doubling. Consider how Odysseus meets giants twice, once in the form of the Cyclops and once in the form of the Laestrygonians, Or he meets two dangerous magical women, Circe and Calypso. As with the biblical stories, there are a number of ways to interpret this. The most likely reason for the doubling is probably just that the stories are drawn from different sources, perhaps shorter poems about the heroes involved, and then these were conglomerated into a grand tale that sort of vacuumed up all the existing material of various sources indiscriminately. If this seems a little clumsy, you might prefer the idea that these stories are purposefully told twice to emphasize small but significant differences or growth. Another element in the story of the Odyssey that we'll see again and again in Western literature is the journey to the underworld, or the land of the dead anyway. Seen already in the Epic of Gilgamesh, this is a theme that will wind its way through a number of cultural stories in the West. It continues in the Greek tradition tradition in various tales, including that of Orpheus seeking his lost love Eurydice. The Old Testament has Jonah in the belly of the whale, The Christian tradition, which will supplant all pagan traditions eventually in the West, the Christian tradition will incorporate this concept into the Christ story and the episode known as the Harrowing of Hell, when Christ descends into the underworld to rescue all those good men and women who came before his message of salvation was known. But for me, perhaps, the most important overall review of the Odyssey focuses on the noticeably humble nature of the Odyssey when compared to the Iliad. Now, in some ways, the Odyssey is a more fantastic tale. Both epic poems depict gods, but the Iliad, for the most part, remains a story about a series of battles on a Bronze Age Anatolian beach. The Odyssey, on the other hand, contains witches and nymphs and one-eyed man-eating giants in a journey to the underworld where the shades of the dead drink blood before sharing their thoughts. But nevertheless, the story eventually winds down into something much closer to home, Consider Odysseus himself, who, while well connected with the gods, is not like Achilles. He's not the son of a goddess or a nymph, anyway. No, Odysseus' father is a man that we meet while he's grubbing in the dirt, working his own modest farm, though he does possess a number of slaves and servants. Our hero here is a king, but he is a king over a comparably modest realm, a small and relatively unimportant island off the northwest coast of Greece. I mean, his wife does his own, her own sewing, for Pete's sake. She's not commanding a large retinue of servants to do her bidding from moment to moment. And of course, there is that final moment in the tale that clashed between Odysseus, hero of the Trojan War, and his ill-mannered, unruly neighbors. It's a strange denouement for someone who has raided palaces and cities and spoken with the gods themselves, but it also nails the story down to earth. Like a Fabulous airship tethered to the ground so that common earthbound folk like ourselves might find a way into it, find some connection, however tenuous, to a tale that stretches the imagination and inspires the mind. The next episode will be the last one in the first unit of episodes about the Greek contribution to our Western traditions. The focus will be on Greek life and culture after the collapse of the Bronze Age societies in the Mediterranean, a time period sometimes called the Greek Dark Age. I will also focus on Hesiod, the writer of previously cited works such as Works and Days and The Theogony. Also, this time period is that of Homer himself, who possibly heard stories about the Trojan War and reinterpreted them through a Greek Dark Age lens. I also wanted to remind you one more time to visit the website at western-traditions.org. That's western-traditions.org. And until then, I thank you for listening to the Western Traditions Podcast.